Hello and welcome to Global Digital Futures Podcast, brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipoma Pondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we welcome Angad Chowdhury and Anurag Banerjee, the co-founders of Quilt.ai, the company using big data to understand people better. We speak to them about AI for social good. Dr. Angad Chowdhury completed his PhD from SOAS, and his academic specialization is anthropology and media studies. He has conducted big data, big culture research in over 70 countries across clients and industries. At Quilt.ai, he is working on integrating the latest advances in cognitive computing with the exponentially increasing human data that is being openly generated to conduct anthropology at scale. For almost a decade, Anurag Banerjee ran an 800-person team for global business development at American Express. He built a fee-based travel big data business to $1 billion before starting on his entrepreneurial journey. He was employee number one at Jana Mobile, which was invested in by Publicis and Verizon Ventures with $100 million raised. Post-exiting Jana, he raised $150 million across multiple ventures that he has backed and advised. Social Cops was his last venture prior to Quilt.ai and was funded by Ratan Tata and did work for India's Prime Minister Modi. Hello Angad. Hello Anurag. Thanks for joining us today. Hi there. Thank you for having us. I haven't been back in over a decade. Yes, welcome back. <laughs> Not much has changed. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's a good thing in today's day. Great. It still needs a paint job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the good thing is that the energy is still alive here at SOA, so Correct. that's great. So can you start by telling us about Quilt.ai and your aims? Sure. I ran into Angad at at this really cute coffee shop in an area called House Cars in Delhi. And it's called Sleepy Owl Cafe. And we discussed the idea of uh, patching the world together because our belief on goods and mine is that we live in a fairly fragmented world where the level of civility in discourse is down, empathy is down, and we all live in our tech filter bubbles. Can we use technology to break some of these bubbles so we understand each other better? I, you and I may never agree on things, but as long as I always know where you're coming from, people, I think, I think the world's a better place. So that's the intent of quilt.ai. So it's fragments, you patch it together like an old-fashioned quilt. So that's the context. And you speak about empathy at scale and AI for social good. Why is this so important right now? And what sort of human problems are you attempting to solve? I mean, I think there's no large-scale problem that I think we'll be able to solve in our lifetimes. But the comment I always make is, and Angad met my daughter, who's nine years old, and she asked Angad and me, well, what do you, what do you want to do? with this new company? And Angad asked this really nice question, which is, who's your best friend? And Sonika, my daughter, replies, and it's this girl called Sienna. <laughs> and Angad said, why is she your best friend? And Anika says, well, because I know everything about her. And Angad said, well, that's what Daddy and I want to do. We want to make sure that once you know everything about each other, you'll be friendly-ish. So the idea is that tech can be used for good. There's a large statement in the world today about tech not being used for good at scale. And we clearly believe that it's not tech's fault. It's perspective, right? So technology by itself is a wonderful thing. How you apply it is important. And we'd like to apply AI and parts of ML and other technologies that we're familiar with to solving problems, whether they're as simple as as simple as just knowing more about where to go get medication, to how to reduce misogyny, to how to prevent
and diabetes and and mental health and mental health suicides and really um, an interesting piece of work for us because mental health or depression is the largest problem in the world today and it's been you know from a monetary perspective from an impact perspective from the impact on health resources etc and it's very hard to understand and it's very understaffed in terms of psychiatrist to patient ratio but if you use technology to not necessarily intervene but just understand people better and get into that cycle then we can our, our goal is how do we how do we use the tech to augment all the good that's already being done right so we're enablers of NGOs charities foundations doctors that's that's the intent okay so So can you then tell us about some of the projects you're working on? Maybe some of the recent projects that you want to highlight? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> There, there's some passion projects. So just to give you a sense of the structure of the company, yeah. uh, we we're about a year old now. We started in March. 60% of our work has historically been for commercial purposes, for corporations, banks, etc. And about 40% of our work has been for purpose-driven foundations, NGOs who try and do impact at scale. Of that 40%, we split it. 20% of that is paid work. So an organization will come to us and say, help us understand diabetes, help us understand mental health, help us understand safe sex uh, concerns amongst uh, you know lower income youth. And the other half is the moonshot work, which is stuff that Anurag and I and the rest of the team feel extremely passionate about and is not paid, but we innovate on. By the end of 2019, 19, yes. we hope to uh, do more and more purpose-driven work as more and more foundations and large-scale people who are doing good in the world get more comfortable with with sort of technology like this. Uh, so that's the overall context. So that's the overall context of the company. So within that, we do a lot of projects. So in commercial cases, we help people who use technology, use it more, buy more, so, you know, understand what people's aspirations and anxieties are with respect to a range of product categories. We help marketers understand the people that they serve better. We help people craft better stories when, when they're selling things. So there's a whole bunch of work that's sort of the bread and butter business. In the foundation space, we try and help people understand things about their stakeholders that they might not get from a focus group or an ethnographic piece of work like suicide detection you know searches for safe sex across multiple geographies access to tremendous scale of data you're in so as so you know that research is often time consuming laborious and slow but the internet is immediate and fast and live and scalable so anytime anybody has any problems in that space we are the ones that they call so the most exciting project for me right now is using search engine behavior to understand refugee needs So inside refugee camps, when you send an NGO worker into a refugee camp, they'll give larium tablets, water, access to basic blankets, etc. But is that the only thing that people want? People are people. People want a lot of things. And in order to get those things, they search for them on the internet. So we extract all the search engine data emerging from refugee camps. And we look at that to understand what people actually want. So we recently finished a work in Bangladesh and we saw that everyone was uh, in, in, in the, the, the large Rohingya refugee camp. And we saw that everyone was actually searching for music and sources of mp3 players right now that's not something you would tell an aid worker right we saw that people in syrian refugee camps were searching for wedding dresses and the ability to get married again not something that you would tell an aid worker but they both represent a desire for normality in an abnormal situation so that's the most exciting piece of work that we're working on that personally for me is important and one of the things that anurag and i were discussing is can we create a p2p gifting method on top of that so if so if we know that people in refugee camps in bangladesh are searching for mp3 players can we get just people on the internet to send mp3 players to the refugee camp independent of so stuff like that it's a little harebrained and crazy but yeah I mean, that's that's why it's a moonshot no it's amazing and I think it's very humanistic because my next question was with AI or machine learning and data the perception that one might have is that it reduces people to pie charts and statistics right and 
numbers and that there might be other nuances that are overlooked or some information that right. is left out. And from just describing that project, you're circumventing this or approaching it in a different way. Can you tell us more about yes, that? If, if you go back to the, the premise of Quilt, right, which is around empathy at scale, and empathy can't be thrown into three pie charts and four bar graphs and, and a couple of line things. We get a lot of data in pie charts and graphs from different platforms. But the idea is converting that into a human lens. Do we miss stuff? Of course we miss stuff. Do we have a complete view on everything? Of course we don't. But here's how the world worked before. The world worked prior to us saying, I spoke to 10 women in a village in India or Kenya, and these 10 women were between the age of 25 and 35. And this is what they said. And that's all you have. But if I can give you 20,000 women with nuances of not only their age, but their moms, what they like, what they search for, what their anxieties are, do they want jobs, are they worried about safe sex, do they have HIV, do they like music, are sugar daddies a big thing? All these things become contextually rich information that we then stack on. So it's not just a pie chart ever. In fact, the intent is to move away from that very, very aggressively. So a lot of the AI ML models that we're building are built with consultation of anthropologists, semioticians, qualitative researchers. So it can read things like anxiety, which is culturally located much more than saying, okay, 14% wanted X, which pie charts have been extremely damaging from an empathy perspective. So has PowerPoint, if you really think about it, because it reduces all human communication to linear forms and unidirectional causality. And we try and move away from that. So I think also with AI and machine learning, there's a fear of a lack of diversity. How have you managed to make your AI models or machine learning models as diverse as possible? Um, Essentially, the training data is culturally curated training data and humanly tagged. So whatever Indians or whatever people in a certain town in Kenya believe about a certain subject, that becomes the training data set. So it's almost like crowdsourcing the the models from all the data that people are already generating. We're very excited about that because it allows us to get real cultural nuance. So when my AI calls something as nationalistic, right, the training set for that has been tagged by people in that country as nationalistic and is reading that in a new data set. So we're working very hard towards ensuring uh, that that happens. Uh, Two things that I would add to that. Angad's been very clear about the fact that as an honest researcher, you will always have biases. Our team will have biases. And so the idea is, one is A, A is crowdsourcing. B is we have a 60-40 female to male gender ratio, which for a tech company is fascinating, even though we're, we're small. And we're being deliberate in terms of having the cultural leaders in the company, the anthropologists, the semioticians, the cultural researchers, inform the tech, not the other way around, right? So it's not AI that is then cutting things into pie charts. It's anthropologists who are telling the AI to read. Because AI will do what he wanted to do, right? Will we get something wrong again? Yes, I think the the truth is we, in a truly Socratic way, we, we don't know what we don't know. But as long as the intent, you know, so I, I'm always going to go back to the intent. The intent of the company is to never assume that a model is complete or it's fully informed, but that it, it needs iteration, it needs points of view, it needs collaboration. And how do you get that data? For example, um, I think the reason why there's skewed data in the first place, let's say on, I don't know, with Google AI or Facebook AI is because the majority of the people that use those platforms and generate the information are in the West and wealthier countries. So how do you gain that information on the more underrepresented groups globally? So that's a good point. But we found that with the recent technological advances happening across the world, more and more people are coming online than ever before at a tremendously large scale and speed. So the skew that existed maybe four or five years ago is getting leveled out very fast. We also have found that there are certain types of people who speak on social media, right? And there's a 
certain skew there as well. But we try and capture other sources such as search. Search is a very powerful data pool and everybody is searching in some shape or form. We also look at local media, local uploads, local influences. Um, we also look at map data. So entire tech stack is designed to balance out all the skews that happen when a population is digitizing. Yeah, we just launched this uh, really interesting report. I'll, I'll send it to Chipo on women and financial empowerment on, on Friday and we did this session in Singapore. One of the questions from one of the panelists was fascinating. It was about this article I think Sally Krochak wrote, which was about car seats and car testing, right, done with male bodies and male heights. Are there biases in, in everything? Yes, that's absolutely true. With the internet being the input for all our data, as the world normalizes, we do a ton of work in villages and tier three, tier four towns across Africa and Asia and Southeast Asia. And we find that the, when the people come online, they'll never be the same density as you would have, say, in London. Not, not, not never, but for, for some time. But there is enough density there. And what's uplifting is this. I find that the people who are coming online in rural parts of the world use the internet in a far more evolved commercial manner. So it's women who are making face creams at home and then selling it on YouTube and Instagram. Mm -hmm. So it's not Anurag sitting at Russell Square and uploading photos of his latest sandwich, right? Yeah. So, so there, there's, there's a higher purpose to the way they, they engage online. And I think that then informs what the next reality of the internet will be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. We are learning a lot about the digital divide and questioning how technology and digital media is how people are engaging with it in the global south. And research like this might even disprove some notions and biases that we have about how people are using technology, the scope of it as well. We have this great uh, slide in one of our decks that we did a, a while ago, which said in the villages in Indonesia, the biggest competitor to Amazon is Instagram, because all these <laughs> right. women are coming on Instagram and doing social commerce because they don't have time to waste with selfies and they don't want to waste data on selfies, but they are very happy using the data in an instrumental way, as Anurag pointed out, in order to get more revenue. What are the possibilities of having all of this information? Because I think this is all in its infancy in a way, right? So apart from just the value of the data itself, and what are the different motivations of, say, US tech companies versus Chinese government and maybe other players in this field? Anurag, I'll let you take that. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice pass. Uh, nice pass. So if I, if I stage the answer... Um, or, or in phases. The first is, Anga, there's a great saying, which is, this is the thing that'll lead to the thing. So it's steam that then powers engines, that then powers commerce and tracks and the railroad. Um, so that's the analogy he uses. And I'll stay with that. I think we don't know what we don't know. We've indexed the world. Google's done a great job of it. We've done some social media stuff so we can share photos and tell people where we're eating. There's some commerce happening. But as Jeff Bezos himself will say, this is the beginning of e-commerce or internet in that respect. I think every one of these tech companies is, uh, is going to have to reinvent themselves at an extremely rapid pace. The internet of the last five years is not going to be the internet of the next five years. Privacy is going to play a really important part. How people trade that value for privacy continuum is an interesting piece to have. Content is going to be interesting with folks like Netflix and other players being bigger. Transactions, payments. WeChat is a phenomenal product, which the West doesn't have, right? So I, th I think the internet will change dramatically. I think the, the tension points will arise around what, I, what do I give up for convenience, right? And what do I give, what elements of my privacy? We've always given up privacy in some shape or form. We give up privacy so we can have a bank loan and we can be measured against that, right? So there are these credit scores that have been around forever. Airline frequent flyer miles have taken away some privacy because they know what we're doing. The same way with the tech platforms, they've attracted some, some you know, flack, which, you know, some part of it is fair, some part of it is unfair. But the next thing is about, uh, honestly, two things. It is going back to being human. And the 
citizen as opposed to a bit and a byte and a mobile phone number and IP address and a cookie. And what do you think when everyone else has access to AI? What do you think the possibilities of that will be? You mentioned a little bit about this in the lecture when you came to SOAS. Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll be great. I think, I think... Um, it's like, you know, the thing is, okay, I'm going to say something very controversial right now. Oops. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's going to be a toolkit, just like Excel is a toolkit and PowerPoint is a toolkit and uh, radio is a toolkit because essentially it's training machines to do basic cognitive tasks and then scaling that up exponentially, finding patterns in data. Because the language is so sophisticated and journalists are, of course, slightly alarmist about it and there's an arms race happening right now, I think by the time it trickles down to everyday people, we're going to have seriously augmented humans. And by that, I don't mean some Robocop stuff, right? I just mean the ability to parse through data, parse through information, make connections, get insights from information is going to be fairly democratic. <coughs> Where does that lead us? Obviously somewhere better because the smarter people are, the, the better the world is. But I guess you also have an awareness of the less positive or more negative side of this and where it could go because there's some work that you choose not to do. And can you tell us a bit more about that? So, so look, I think I think you leave technology alone for a second and just think about us as human beings. We human beings have certain very good qualities. We human beings have certain very bad qualities, right? So we've had wars about stuff. We've had crusades. We've had genocide. And that all happened before AI came along, just so we're clear. AI and other tools amplify the good in us. They also amplify the bad in us. Are there actors who are seeking to amplify the bad? Yes, of course. But overall, you have to fundamentally believe two things. One is that human beings are better when they have more tools. And I think that's, that's the story of the human race. And the second thing you have to believe is that human beings will end up being, as a race, overall better, more good than bad. The other thing I would say about AI, just to echo what Angad said, is um, you know Elon Musk might be seeing something that I'm not seeing. And it's hard to take on someone as, as awesome as that. But the singularity is not coming anytime soon. For people like us who use AI, it is a very limited capability. This is not rocket science at this point in time. Is it fascinating? Yes. Do we see the promise of it? Of course. But machines aren't taking over the world. Like, not not for a long, 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 long time. Though I would urge your <laughs> listeners to Google uh, Rocco's Basilisk. And that's all I'm going to say right now. Okay. So I just wanted to go into more of the processes and how some of your studies work. Can you just tell us about what sort of methods you're using sure. and what types of data you deal with so, and maybe the skills required, the makeup of your teams? So I'll start with the skills. We have half anthro, semioticians, cultural researchers, historians, people who have a very strong sense of the human and half are tech people, engineers, data scientists, etc. And together they build things. So it's not one driving the other, it's a sort of collaborative effort. So that's the uh, skill set. From a data source perspective, we pretty much all different platforms and offer a certain type of information out. So search has impressions, Twitter has count and frequency, medias have coverage. So everyone has a different um, type of data uh, set that they give. What we are very good at is knowing what sort of digital data can give you a human insight. So suppose I wanted to find out what refugees were, their aspirations were, I would not look at social media uploads, but I would look at search engine behavior, right? So we are good at knowing what to use for which sort of problem. Once we 
understand what source we want to take, we put up a bid or we get API access. And the moment the, the data enters our system, the first thing we do is we delete all personally identifiable information. We never see it. So there's, it, we don't know the handles, names, people. None of that. None of that. So then we get a large stream of data. This data is visual, uh, textual, and mathematical. And visual has either video or image, right? So those are the various types of information that happen. Then all the machines that are, that our researchers have trained start clustering that data. So in visual, they'll see the objects inside an image or they'll see the concepts reflected in the image, you know, to the point about nationalism versus whatever. So there's a certain read, a qualitative human read. So when you look at a photo, you can say, you know, make certain deductions about the person based on what they're wearing, what they look like. We're training machines to do that. Similarly, in, in the language uh, that is being pulled in, when we have, I think, now mastery over 120 different languages, we are not interested in what a word means, but how words relate to each other. So we mathematize language. And so the linguistic data that comes in gets clustered into higher order concepts. So both of those conceptual outputs go to our researchers and then they make human deductions on the back of that and then make recommendations on the back of those. Think of it as tremendously high-scale field work. That is what the machines are allowing us to do. It's really interesting that there's a qualitative nature to that as well, because that's really important when dealing with human data and to humanize data. And I think that's what people might doubt a machine can can do. The machine can't do it. <laughs> the machine can assist you yes. in doing yes. it. So that's, I think, the, the nuance. And, and the funniest thing, we've I always tell the story when I meet clients, and when they have a hard time understanding how the machine computes and why a machine can can do certain things. And, and a very simple use case is this. Let's say you're out today at, at Russell Square, and it's a great view, right? You, you feel the sun come down, there's a green grass, and, I, and you say, ah, oh, this is a great view. But your brain, even as a sophisticated human, it's so as your brain can't break that down into why exactly, what are the elements that make it great? But if I told you, Chipo, give me a hundred great photos of great views, you could do that. Now, when you put that into the machine, the machine breaks those photos down into subcomponents and finds a relationship mathematically that our brain is capable of understanding, but not breaking it down. So now that's that's what a machine does. And I've, I've, I train it as a human with empathy, like an anthropologist and a semiotician, and then the machine takes over and follows my training. This is quite a unique approach to machine learning. I totally agree. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) This is what happens when you let an anthropologist and a banker hang out for too long. (laughs) I'm a recovering banker. Because I just feel like if this was the conversation around AI and machine learning that people always heard, there wouldn't be as much fear or as much negativity about it, right? Yes. That's a good point. Yeah, you're right. So one of the things we've done is we've started, and I would request everyone uh, to follow us on Medium, quilt.aio, and Anurag is writing some incredible content right now, which is essentially just showing you how all of this technology can solve and human problems and impact people in a positive way. And we've had we've clients like like Purpose out of New York um, who wrote a blog about us around how we helped them do on-ground work more effectively by understanding abortion and contraception better, right? So there's this, this cool impact that, that you can see the clients are then happy to talk about. And just with 
having people's data, how can people be more aware of how their data is used? Because I think that's also another thing that adds to people's fear about, you know, data analysis, AI. How much can you tell about a person from their data firstly? And how can users actually be involved in this process as well? That second part's a really interesting question. I definitely want to um, ask you for your opinion on that. But let me answer the first part first. There's a legal stance and a moral stance. Mm -hmm. Let's check the legal stance first. But the moral stance is the one that's much more important longer than me. So the legal stance is we as individuals give up certain rights to use certain platforms. And those platforms then give data to people who buy it. And we are one of the people who buy it. So what we're doing is legal. Angad mentioned something about 10 minutes ago about us not taking the personally identified. So let's say your Instagram handle. Your photos would come in, but your handle and anything that identifies you directly, right? I mean, you may be in a photo with four people and we'll get that one, but the handle wouldn't come in. And part of it is because we don't want to be able to identify backwards. The second is we we don't care about cheap or the individual, honestly. We care about With peop- all due respect. <laughs> <laughs> we care about people like you, so as students with a certain bent of mind who think a particular way and have certain anxieties, aspirations, needs. Because then the idea is you need to help hundreds, thousands, millions of people, right? So that's, that's the legal stance. The moral stance is we don't take anything below the age of 18. Even the platforms allow you to go below that. We don't sell tobacco. We had a very interesting offer to read prisoners' letters and run our AI on that for a million dollars a month. We said no to that. I could use that million, honestly. We said no to several ice cream brands wanting to target kids. We said no to a recent big China project with toys for kids. So that's that's the moral. Morality is, you know, this is this is a fascinating piece because as an academic who studied here, morality is often defined by what you say yes to and what you affirm. Mm-hmm. But in the real world, it's often defined by what you say no to. Mm-hmm. And the, the things we say no to define us a lot more than what we affirm. Because you can affirm anything, right? But saying no takes courage. Mm-hmm. And so the second part of it was around how do we get people involved? I think there are a few things that I would love to experiment with. One of them is Angad and I doing some interesting work uh, on fake news and disinformation on health topics. And, and it's, it's a problem that the platform struggle with. It's a problem that exists in the world. And it's both, unfortunately, from both sides of the political spectrum, too. Um, So how do we create maybe a product, right, where people can, in a crowdsourced manner, give input, give guidance? At least let's weed out fake news. (laughs) Let's solve that that one fundamental problem that is plaguing our our current society. I have another controversial statement to make. Oops, again. (laughs) But fake news is one of the largest problems that we have as a population, whether it's democracy, healthcare, violence, it's deeply linked to the fake news issue. And I believe that governments and and right-thinking people should get together to eradicate it, almost like they eradicated some of the diseases that we've had in the past. It's that big a problem. It will destroy everything we have built as a civilization. So it's very important to to get off. Yeah, because the information that's spread via social media, it is very influential. Of course. We've been talking about sort of counter-narratives and questioning how effective those are. And what people engage with online is extremely influential in changing their perspectives. I have done some experiments on myself where I have joined communities and changed my entire information ecosystem Mm -hmm. to believe in, to follow certain ideologies, whether it's survival 
populists, flat earthers, gun nuts, right wingers, left wingers, like I've done the whole lot. And I find within a day and a half of consuming information that's not in my own comfort zone, my perception of the world changes. There is an affective relationship between digital information and the constitution of the self that uh, has not been studied at all. Are you going into that field of research? We'd like to, I think, in, in the first year we've, we've built some interesting things. There are many routes we can take, but one route we definitely want to investigate more is, it's you know, it's like that Mark Twain saying, you travel and so you get more informed. So we are informed, we live in this in this thing, right, in this phone, and, and the news feed is is our travel and it's our content ecosystem and it's what shapes every worldview you have. So I am a eco-warrior, right? If I see you with a straw, I'm going to yell at you, for example. <laughs> but my newsfeed is full of that, right? Um, and that's a non-debatable one, but you can you can have other areas that are their points of view, right? So climate change versus not. Are there, is it true, is it not? Um, and of course, many of us, all of us know it's true, right? I can see my bias coming through. <laughs> but there may be people who are pushing a ton of content or consuming content who say, actually, those photographs are all doctored. So there's, there's, it's important to understand what is in somebody's ecosystem and it goes back to the point we both made half an hour ago around empathy being important. How do I understand you so then I can help you overcome your biases and you can help me overcome my biases? And what do you think about GAN and this sort of <laughs> conversation about synthetic data? Does this, does this affect the work that you're doing at um, all? So I'll answer the question of how it affects the work we are doing. We're seeing it, of course, in some shape or form. The way we're pegging it right now is it's also reflective of a certain human impulse and ingenuity and experimentation and collaboration. So you don't read it as itself, but you read what brought it there and what created it and the impact that it's had. And what is that? What? What brought it there, what created it, and Uh, what impact does it have? When we have more information, we will share it because, as you know, it's fairly new. Though we find it fascinating that the moment GANs started creating faces, people got worried. It was fine before. It was fine before that, right? Because uh, why is your face the most worrisome part? Because, oh, it could be a photo, it could be a doctor, it could be a video, right? You could be shown in, in compromising situations. But the more subversive thing to worry about is information, knowledge, text. So we've, you know, we've got text generators that we've built. And it's fascinating how much a text generator can put out, even for a small company like I mean, us. There's, there's obviously, the last announcement in the Elon Musk Mama, company, yeah, yeah where that, that text generator was incredible. But there are others that are working just as well. We have a Trump generator. We have an inspirational meme generator. I like the inspirational meme one. Yeah. It gets me fired up every morning. We're, we're, working, <laughs> we're working on a poetry generator right now. So the sad story of my life <laughs> is I was a really bad poet. And I was told by a very famous poet not to write poetry ever again. So I gave that up and, you know, went and got a real job. But I really want to build an AI engine that's better than a poet. And, you know, this is the limitation of the AI engine is we're not, we're not there yet. But GANs are linked to fake news, you know. Yeah. Like, there is a general sort of scaling up of the pollution of the internet information ecosystem and we have to figure out a way to manage that or frame that or filter that or evaluate that beyond just censoring things. What do you think it says about people that what shook them up is GANs creating pictures of humans? There's this anthropomorphization of AI, right? AI has been around for a really long time, whether it's serving you ads or making sure your trains run on time, right? But 
but I think it's the closest anthropomorphized version of AI that we have seen. I don't know where it's going to go. There was deep fakes a few months ago, if you recall, which was the video uh, version of uh, uh, reality manipulation. But I think, um, you know, as a SOAS student, you are aware of Baudrillard and simulations and simulacra, but the general population isn't. So the experience of that is very disorienting for most people. So just to round up, could you just tell us what you see for the future of AI and some of the exciting things that you're looking at at the moment or looking yeah. forward to? It's embarrassing to say this as an AI as an AI company, but honestly, but and I mean, I'm not trying to be falsely modest here. We just don't know the capabilities. The, the funnest part about our jobs is every day is this epic learning lift that happens. And I think that's important. In terms of the future of AI, I think in this lift, if we can solve for better humanity, less warfare, less hatred, less crime. Those would be things that Angadana would like to dedicate, dedicate quilt, quilt towards. Yeah. So a positive human impact is the most a person can really aspire to achieve in their lives. And some of us have large scale ambitions. Some of us have small scale ambitions. But the moment you have an intent, you can make a dent in the universe. Can you also tell us how some of the students can get in touch with you and what opportunities there are within Quilt? It's always good to have have students for a couple of reasons, right? A is they haven't yet been biased by real world thinking. So it's always nice to have, have clean thinking folks. So two things. One is we run an internship program in Singapore. We're probably going to do one in London, hopefully even this summer. So it's angad at quilts.ai, anurag at quilts.ai. We're fairly responsive. Find us on LinkedIn. We guarantee an answer one way or the other. And if you're not applying and you find somebody else who would be interesting, please have them, have them apply. Cool. Discover more about this topic by accessing the following resources available in the show notes on our website. Discover more about Quilt.ai on their website, www.quilt.ai. Follow Angered on Twitter, at AngeredC, and follow Quilt.ai on Medium, at Quilt.ai. And you can connect with Angered and Anurag on LinkedIn and contact them by email, links to which will be provided in the show notes. Listen to Anurag's interview on the Inside India podcast, the social impact of artificial intelligence and watch Angered's TEDx presentation, The Future That Watches Us. Read the insights discovered from the Quilt.ai study, Sexual Reproductive Health and the Internet, which is on Purpose.com and read the insights discovered from the Quilt.ai study, Changing the Digital Ecosystem, Shaping Sexual Health for Boys in Rajasthan. That's on the CIFF.org website. To learn more about the possibilities of synthetic data, read Deep Learning with Synthetic Data, make AI accessible to the masses and learn how AI creates images and more in the article What is GAN? The AI technique that makes computers creative and watch Bloomberg's quick take on deep fakes which are realistic fake videos and audios created by AI algorithms. The video is titled It's getting harder to spot a deep fake video. Al Jazeera asks How will trust in video change at a time when artificial intelligence is making it easier to to create fake audio visuals. Watch their take on it. Can you spot a deep fake video? And what is Rocco's Basilisk? Find out in the show notes. You can find us online at www.soascodingclub.com. Follow us on Facebook at Soas Coding Club and on Twitter at Soas Coding Club. We broadcast every two weeks, so tune in to discover what's to come in your global digital future. Mm-hmm.